1: this episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is brought to you by Hulu Plus. Watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere with Hulu Plus, on your TV or on the go with your smartphone or tablet. Shows like Cosmos, Modern Family, The Mindy Project, and more. Right now, you can try Hulu Plus free for two weeks when you go to HuluPlus.com slash fighting. That's HuluPlus.com slash fighting. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, September 11th, the Porn Talk Edition. I'm Dan Kois. I'm the dad of Lyra, who is nine, and Harper, who is six, and I'm an editor at Slate.
2: I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate, and the mother of Harry, five, Sam, three, and Wally, one. Hey, Allison. Hey.
1: All right, Allison, what year is it? Uh, 2014. You could say that with a little more vigor.
2: 2014.
1: It's not? 1985. No. It's 2014, and there is a lot of porn on the internet, so your kids are definitely going to see some banging. And this week, we'll be talking to Slate's own Dolly Lithwick about the best ways to talk about that with your kids. We're also discussing family dinners and a new study that suggests that they might be more trouble than they're worth, plus parenting triumphs and fails, and a listener call about body image and politeness. If you enjoy Mom and Dad are Fighting, thanks. We enjoy you. Please tell a friend send an email post a link on Facebook your recommendations are the number one way that new new fans find the show even if you hate listen to us it is possible that someone else might enjoy hate listening too. you should share that unique joy okay enough bald faced self-promotion onward to triumphs and fails Allison
2: okay my fail is an ongoing fail that I'm hoping listeners can help me with uh, I have mentioned this in passing a few times on the show but basically my children are sexist they say, and I quote, girls are boring, girls are stupid, they drag girls for liking princesses, whether or not the girl actually does like princesses, and are surprised when we read a book by a female author. Really, like, they're like, what? Oh, man. Girls, right? <laughs> uh, I recently told them that my boss is a woman, Julia Turner. What a woman. And they were, like, totally blown away. Uh, I have no idea where they get this from. Uh, you know, I think I'm a pretty, like... Awesome, non boring, non stupid girl with a job. Whether correct, or not. and so I actually don't know how to combat it. I we we started buying more books by female authors when they made that comment and actually noticed that many of the books we had were written by men. Um, and, of course, I talked to them about girls being cool and make clear that princesses aren't lame and also that all girls like all sorts of things, just like boys. But none of it has, has seemed to stick. They seem very determined in their gender assumptions. So just, and I'm you know, I edit double X at Slate, the, the lady blog, the feminist, <laughs> the feminist section of Slate. So that's my fail.
1: Wow. That's intense. I don't know how to combat that. Uh, I mean, I, to some extent, that is perfectly natural, totally crazy little kid behavior. Like that, you know, my kids were like that about boys for a while, and they weren't actually misandrists. Like, I think that, that is, that's not uncommon. I think that that will evolve somewhat. But yes, I mean, you should definitely keep pushing the message. Though. We
2: were reading James and the Giant Peach, and there's like a, there's a scene in James and the Giant Peach, a very, like, you know, just a passing thing in James and the Giant Peach where there are cloud men in James and the Giant Peach and the cloud men go home to their cloud wives who are cooking over frying pans. And I was reading it and then I kept reading. Like, I sort of noticed it as I was reading, but I didn't say anything, kept reading onto whatever was happening next. And then Harry stopped me and said, hey, the cloud men and the cloud women have a pretty good deal. The men cook, I mean, the women cook and the men work. And I was like, what? Why did you notice that? Yeah, so... I don't know.
1: All right. Listeners, please uh, email us at mom and tell Allison how to make her kids the tiny feminists that they should be.
2: All right. What do you got?
1: I've got a triumph. Um, so I was really, really, really tired last night because we just got back from the Slate retreat. And uh, so I was like three hours of sleep the night before tired. And I was seeing the kids for the first time in a couple of days. And so it was like a very intense and great afternoon. And I was so happy to see them. But I was also tired enough that I could... S- see the possibility of myself becoming a snappish dick of a parent. And I was especially worried about bedtime because bedtime in our house is a very mixed bag. Like sometimes the kids are super sleepy and sweet and obedient and happy to get into bed and it's a total delight, but sometimes they just stall endlessly. Like it's not even that they're arguing with us or saying, I don't want to go to bed it's just that they find like a million little stupid things they need to do that are not getting in bed. Like Harper, for example, like if you made a word cloud of things that Harper says after eight o'clock PM, wait, 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 I just gotta would be like the big huge thing in the middle of the word cloud. And I was really worried last night that I would like be driven sleeplessly insane by them, like refusing to get into bed. So last night to combat in advance, this possible parenting fail, uh, I decided to change up bedtime a little. So, As she was brushing her teeth, I got into my bed, and I lowered the lights. And when Harper came in, she, like, looked at me like, what are you doing? And I told her that she had to put me to bed. She had to tuck me in and read me a book. And she got really excited about, like, having this job to do. And she picked out a book, and she snuggled up with me, and she relaxed, and she read me Green Eggs and Ham. And she tucked me in, and she kissed me. And then she seemed sort of just like... Unbalanced enough by me screwing around with the bedtime routine that she forgot to do all the stalling that she would ordinarily do, and she just went right to her room and she laid down. So that is my triumph. And then the other triumph is that then I went to sleep at nine o'clock, and it was so great uh, that I also recommend that for.
2: That me. is a triumph. But you understand now, that you're, she's going to like insist that you pretend go to bed every night.
1: Oh no! I'll have to fall asleep again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's true. Okay, <laughs> triumph.
1: All right. Let's move on to our first topic: porn and your children. Not my children, obviously. Recently in The Atlantic, a father named Dave Eagle wrote about a conversation he had with his nine-year-old son about porn he found in his kid's browser history. In the end, he uses a pretty good metaphor about the difference between playing baseball yourself and watching the Red Sox play. You know, the Red Sox can throw at 100 miles an hour, but that's not how most people experience baseball, and it's way more enjoyable to actually play baseball yourself. The conversation was, of course, super uncomfortable, as are all conversations about porn with your kids, no matter what age they are. And hey, you know, my parents never bothered to have that conversation with me, and I turned out okay, despite all my brother's penthouses underneath the bottom left drawer in his desk. So how much do parents actually need to intervene? What's the best way to have this conversation? We're joined today by Slate Supreme Court correspondent Dahlia Lithwick, who's here not because she's an expert on porn, although she knows it when she sees it, but because she, unlike Allison and me, has nearly teenage boys aged 9 and 11. Dahlia, thanks for calling us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, Dahlia, have you had to have this talk? with your boys yet has it come up naturally or unnaturally in the Lithwick household
0: you know it's funny I was thinking uh, as I as I prepared for this conversation that it's come up in really roundabout ways we've actually had you know a harrowing conversation actually about you know church sex abuse uh, with our kids when they were very young because we had a friend who um, was a victim, we had a pretty awful conversation last year about uh, kitty porn because uh, a teacher in a school of one of my children uh, was arrested on uh, you know really incredibly serious charges so we 've talked around it, but it wasn 't until I started reading the Atlantic piece that I realized we hadn 't really talked about the porn itself we 'd kind of had the whole talk about the criminal piece of it without engaging in this question of do you watch it and how does that make you feel? So I I guess I'm a little uh, derelict. I will also just say for purposes of this conversation, my kids have really limited screens. And so uh, reading some of this stuff, it made me realize that, you know, when you, the minute you give your kid, you know, a a device or uh, unfettered access to a screen is almost the minute you need to have this talk.
1: Yeah, although one of the points that is has been made in a lot of writing about this is that it isn't always your kid's screen that this is going to appear on. and And so one thing I want to talk to you guys about today is parental controls, right? Parental control, a lot of parents put those on every device in the house and feel like that solves or at least belays the problem. But that ignores the fact that kids have friends, and those friends have screens, and there are screens all over the earth, in fact, upon which kids can see things that you don't necessarily want them to see, and so – So it seems like you can't necessarily wait until your kid has the screen that you think they might eventually see porn on to have this conversation. And reading all this stuff has made me feel like, oh, I just need to do this.
2: I think it's a lot like the sex talk or it's actually combined with the sex talk. I mean, we sort of separate the two things as like, here's the normal part of sexuality we should be talking about. And here's the explicit part of sexuality that we should be talking about. But I think that's probably a mistake. And I'm not actually as cool about this as, you know, I'm trying to sound. But as the mother <laughs> of three boys, I'm like, tr- I want to keep telling myself I'm very, I'm ner- I'm very nervous about all of this stuff, especially about being in like a tiny New York apartment with three masturbating teenagers. But I feel like I have to keep telling myself that being curious about sex is normal, liking to look at sexual images is normal, masturbating is normal, and just repeat, repeat, repeat. And also to keep in mind that, We don't really know the impact of porn. There was a piece in the New York Times earlier this year by a guy named David Siegel titled, Does Porn Hurt Children? And it essentially said though this has been studied a lot. There's really no conclusive evidence that it does. I mean, in part because the studies that you'd actually have to do are... potentially unethical or illegal, sit a bunch of kids in front of porn for, you know, many months and then see what the impact is. Um, but I think we as parents are a lot more afraid of this than we probably need to be.
1: I wonder if then, like, the next generation of parents will be substantially less afraid than us because surely the next generation will be the one, you know, our our memories of teenage porn, I think whether we are men or women, are sort of half seedy and half affectionate and rosy, you know, like stories of my brother's penthouses or the, you know, the dirty magazines that everyone seems to have in the woods outside their uncle's house or whatever. Like there's, and they always seem like slightly gross, but slightly innocent. But there's nothing innocent about the porn that kids are growing up with now, really. And, and, you know, maybe 10 years from now, the people who are having kids will be the first generation to have grown up with this level of porn, and to sort of understand it in their bones, what that means to have access to those kinds of images all the time, and maybe they will be like less totally paranoid about it than we are.
0: It's funny because it makes me think, Dan, of you know, in that in that um, Atlantic article that you referenced, the the Dave Eagle piece, you know, and he he has that metaphor where he says to his kid, you know, he sort of catches his nine year old out watching porn, and then he has this uncomfortable conversation in the car, um, and it's interesting how often. We're urged to have that conversation in the car. I think he expressly says this way you don't have to make eye contact. But it's right. interesting because the metaphor that he uses is this baseball thing, right? Like you're just watching this beautiful, perfect game, and that's not you know, how we experience baseball. And I thought it's a strange metaphor because it's baseball is still... Baseball and porn is not sex. You know, I mean, it, it's the act of sex, but it, it seems to me like it's a better metaphor might be like this is like watching the natural with the sunlight glinting off Robert Redford's hair. You know, that is, it is to baseball what the natural is, you know, to baseball. And, and, and I thought because you don't want to give the notion that porn is what was his language you know the Olympics of sex that it, it, it sounds so awesome and I think right. you know it's quite the opposite I
1: aspire to the Olympics of sex
0: exactly I mean I don't want to tell my kid like this is really <laughs> as good as going to a ball game you know because it's like icky and like the floors are sticky and people are gross and people are being exploited and the women are covered in bruises like it's so I thought that was a really strange I guess that was the only turn in the piece that made me kind of think no you don't want to tell your kids this is, you know, the highest manifestation of something that if you practice really hard someday, you can get to be in a porn. So
2: what What do we want to communicate them? I don't think the goal, I think we can probably all admit, is not to get them to not watch porn, because that's an unreasonable goal. And even I, I was at a dinner party a couple of years ago with parents of teenage kids, and we were talking about filters and monitoring. And essentially, they all laughed and said, your kids can get a, the, your kids are better at <laughs> oh, this yeah. than you are. They get around oh, yeah. everything. Um, so they thought it was cute that I thought that that was in some way a solution.
0: So what we really—John Roberts said that in a, in a case about
2: monitors. The Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court said the same thing. He said,
1: "Even it. he knows if he if gets, gets it, it parental yeah. controls you don't can't work."
2: So really, what we want is for them to realize that that this is not the way that their sexual experiences are going to go, right? We don't want we want them to understand the difference between fantasy and reality, just like we want them to un- understand that when they're playing video games with, you know, bombs and guns.
1: Yeah, that's part of it, but I also I mean, I also think that how you address it depends to some extent on how you yourself feel about porn. I mean, Dahlia, you made clear how you feel about porn. <laughs> and, and when you say that, oh, it's degrading and dehumanizing and the women are covered in bruises, and many people feel that way. Many people feel like porn is dehumanizing, it degrades the performers, it's damaging to women. And if you feel that way, I mean, part of this conversation is that you are expressing your values to your kid, right? You don't, your kid may not necessarily end up as an adult sharing those values, but part of parenting is... Expressing those values. But, you know, if you are a mom who is a porn positive feminist with a history in sex work, you are going to have a totally different conversation with your kids because porn means something different to you. If you are someone who only cares about all the malware that porn is going to put on your kid's computer that you have to clean up, then that's a totally different conversation. Like, I think that it's worth noting that not everyone is going to have the same kind of conversation. And so, yes, Allison, the number one thing it seems to me, the number one talking point is. Making it clear that porn of all sorts, whether it is highly polished, you know, vivid video or whatever, or like amateur gross stuff that you find on, on random fake YouTubes, that it is always a performance of some kind. That whatever it looks like it does not really reflect the way that sex happens in real life or will happen with you, the, the child, once you make that part of your life.
2: I also think that I guess unless you're coming at from it, how how you were expressing maybe how Dahlia would want to talk to her kids about it. I'm not sure if we're putting words in your mouth, Dahlia, but that it, that it's kind of you you have a, a moral judgment about porn that you want to teach your you know, your kids about. But I think if you aren't coming at it from that point of view, you should probably watch some porn because uh I'm sure, you know, many parents that are listening already do, but if you don't, it's this really, you know, sort of scary thing that you think the worst of. And before you talk to your kids about it, you should probably know what you're talking about.
0: Well, maybe the point, Allison, and it's it's exactly the right point, is that you can say the same thing about porn that you can say about books, right? I mean, there's some that is revolting and abusive and exploitive, you know, and I'm thinking of Chris Hedge's terrifying piece on porn from a couple of years ago that, you know, literally, ah, I, I, uh, um, and then there's some that's, you know, lovely and respectful and sex positive. And, you know, I think you're quite right, Dan, that you can't say all porn is X uh, because there's a range, the way there's a range of everything. And somewhere built into this conversation, there needs to be, you know, some awareness that there's a line, the way there's a line with everything uh, and not, you know, a sort of stark judgment of all porn is, you know, evil, all porn is great, but, you know, th- these are the things that you might want to think about, you know, in, in evaluating whether this is something you want to watch when you're older.
2: It also really depends on the way that your kids, um, you know, first discover porn or what age they are when you're having this conversation. The New York Times also did a great series in 2012, Amy O'Leary, looking at the various ways parents have dealt with the porn question and some expert advice for each scenario. And one of the scenarios was called the accidental click when a six-year-old girl uh accidentally clicked on porn while watching my little pony on YouTube and there's one conversation to have when that happens and then there's a different conversation with your teenage child who you should probably be talking about not just the fantasy versus reality but also like basically giving them some porn literacy how to be discreet uh other there as other advice about you know how to erase history files how to ex- avoid explicit content involving underage Kids. Uh, How
1: not to become explicit content involving underage kids. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that's a really great series, Allison. I'm glad that you mentioned that because it does reflect the fact that there's a whole range of conversations uh, that. That every parent should have, and in fact, every parent should probably have almost every single one of those conversations as their kid gets older and turns into a different kind of person. Um, Do you guys feel like there are different messages for boys than there are for girls, or that there should be different messages for boys than there are for girls?
0: I was really aware, in at least the material I read today that they didn't quite have that distinction. And I feel like one conversation I have had a lot with my boys is, you know, respecting women and, you know, not talking about them in terms of beauty or their bodies. And so it's interesting how that conversation, at least with me, always has stopped at, you know, these explicit porn questions. But I do think that you do have to sort of realize that baked into this discussions of porn are, you know, how, Uh, men think about women and how women think about men. And so I I do think there's a different conversation, although I confess I'm not completely sure uh, how that breaks. I mean, certainly, you know, outside of, of any conversation I've had, although, as I say, you know, I think I have very frequently had the conversation with, you know, my sons, at least, that says, like, we don't, Look at women that way, or talk about women that way, or judge them that way. It, it as I said, it never
2: creeps up into the. And here's what happens in porn. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think, Dan? You're the one with daughters.
1: I think that it there. I mean, yes, a little bit. And and this is one of the things that I sort of fear the most about this conversation when I have it, because I actually think, to me at least, the simple conversation is that relates to them being girls is the one about how when it is time for them to have sex, when they decide that they want to have sex, it ought to be with someone who cares about their pleasure and cares for them and that it doesn't necessarily need to look like the porn that they might eventually see. That seems uncomfortable, but like easy, like that's an easy expression to thing to convey to them. And it's something that I hope will make their lives better. I feel like the more complicated discussion and the one that I'm really dreading having is the one about the way that A lot of porn reflects the awful way that our culture still views women and how they are probably going to be pressing up against that for their entire lives. Like that seems difficult and awful. And I don't want to have that conversation at all, even though in the end it might be just as important or more important.
2: Uh, Okay, I want to ask you guys one uh, final question a couple of years ago there was a letter that a dad wrote to his son that went viral which was essentially a dad discovered his son was watching porn on all of these like not like kind of these horrible sites that i think also put bugs on on their on his computer and so he sent he addressed it by sending his child or writing a letter to his child saying here's here's here are some safe porn sites that i use that i look at and the reaction to this sort of varied. At first, he was kind of a hero, uh, or people people thought he was a hero. And then other people sort of said, no kid is going to want to look at his dad's porn website. <laughs> like, that's the worst, horror, you know, worst thing you can say to your son. He's going to run from that. Uh, and I was talking about this yesterday with um, friends, colleagues, male colleagues, when we were driving home from our Slate Retreat. Slate Retreat? Uh, we did not play a <laughs> rummy
1: cube once, Allison.
2: We didn't. I'm sorry. That's my fail. Uh, but someone in the car, who I will not name, suggested, should there be, like, should people be making porn for teenagers? Like, should there be, like, safe porn? Because kids are going to be looking at this anyway. So, A, would that be a good thing? And, B, would kids ever look at that?
1: I don't know. That's a great question. Like, the problem is that kids would look at it, but that wouldn't be all that they would look at. Like, kids, I assume if if teenagers are anything like I was when I was a teenager, they are omnivorous in their search for anything that reflects the adult world, and especially the adult world of sexuality, and they are never satisfied with what they have found. Even when I got all those penthouses from my brother, that didn't stop me from looking for other porn. And so it seems like, good idea or bad idea, it, couldn't, it we could never make it that that was the only thing that kids looked at.
0: I wonder if, if, though, there is a way to turn... I mean, I think it's a, it's a really cool idea. Actually, it's it's the same as you know, sort of feminist porn, right? It's it, it reframes it and says this is natural and not awful, but like there are certain things that would need to occur. But I do think that maybe it's an interesting way to think about the conversation that you would have about porn. Like, what would be safe, you know, teen positive porn? Um, and I, I, I'm trying to imagine um, what that looks like. So it, it, it's a good way to at least think through that conversation. I mean, the other thing that I I think is so interesting about this is to the extent that we've had to have, even just in the last couple of weeks, you know, my son got his first iPad uh, was just issued in sixth grade. And it came with this multi-page release form that he had to sign. And suddenly he's like almost being told by his school, like, here are things you can't do. And he's looking at his dad and me and being like, wait, People take pictures of their penises and email it. you know, so there's a way in which it's kind of like what Dan said, you know, like, this is no longer a conversation that happens in isolation in your home. This is, you know, schools uh, either through health ed or through, you know, a, a release form uh, are putting words and language into your kid's life that maybe, you know, you weren't entirely ready to talk about why Uh People want to take pictures of their peanut. My answer was uh, talk to your father, which is the wrong answer, just for the record. But, um, you know, I think it's just this interesting question about we we don't even introduce the subject, not even in terms of they don't see it on our screens. But, like, it, you know, when we were kids, nobody at our school would have even put that idea into the discourse.
2: I honestly I think porn for teenagers is my multimillion dollar idea. And I'm actually going to go right now. <laughs> I got to go.
1: I do think that I agree that that is a really interesting idea, though, in this case, it it would technically be illegal under current U.S. law. However, should the laws ever change, someone's going to make a bazillion dollars making porn for teens, and it might actually make things better uh, for the teenagers of America. All right. Thank you so much, Dahlia, for joining us for this difficult, uncomfortable and awkward conversation.
2: We should have it in the car next time. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Bye, Dahlia. Bye-bye. Okay, Dan, I hear we have an exciting new sponsor this week.
1: We do. It's Hulu Plus, the excellent online service for streaming video. With Hulu Plus, you can watch tons of shows on your schedule on demand. They have current season episodes, like the episodes of of the currently running season of a bazillion shows. For example, the best show on television, Bob's Burgers, or the second best show on television, General Hospital. Um, they also have Saturday Night Live, Inside Amy Schumer, Bones. Um, they It works on your computer. It works on smart TV. If you have Apple TV or your Xbox Connect, it works pretty much on any streaming device that you already own. You can watch anywhere, basically, that you can get the internet. For only $7.99 a month, you can get Hulu Plus. You can get those shows anytime and anywhere. But you can get a two-week free trial if you go to huluplus.com slash fighting. That is an extra week free. You get a two-week free trial. That URL, again, is huluplus.com slash fighting. And, of course, for parents, as many of the listeners of Mom and Dad Are Fighting Are, one of the great benefits of Hulu Plus is that they have a gazillion kid shows um, on demand at any time. They've got SpongeBob, they've got Caillou, they've got Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, um, they've got Monsters vs. Aliens, and Power Rangers, and Super Y, um, plus plenty of other things that older kids might like, lots of anime, um, and for your extremely smart teenagers, uh, you can start exploring the world of great cinema as opposed to the crap movies that they might otherwise. Watch because uh, Hulu Plus has the entire Criterion collection on it. So please show your kids e Mama Tambian as soon as possible. Um, please make sure that you use Hulu slash fighting so that you get your extended free trial and so that we get the joyful knowledge of knowing that Hulu Plus is benefiting from our mutual relationship. It helps us make this podcast and it gives you a better deal. So, one more time, that URL is Hulu slash fighting. All right. Thanks, Dan. On to our listener call. We've got a great listener call this week from Danica. Take it away, Danica.
3: Hey, my name is Danica, and I'm calling with a question about messages that we give our kids about body image. So I have a four-year-old daughter, uh, and we work really hard to give her positive messages about her body and everybody's body. You know, the the theme in our house is everybody's built differently. They're all equally good. So my question is, uh, when we go out in public, she'll, you know, sometimes point to somebody and say something like, hey, mom, look at that, you know, look at that brown person or look at that uh, fat person over there. So, of course, this is incredibly embarrassing and potentially uh, really hurtful to the people who are hearing the comments. And so my question is, when we tell her, you can't say that, you can't call people fat, for example, and she asks, why not? Because, you know, being fat is just an observation, right? Like, it's just the same as being thin or being tall. What's the answer? And I appreciate any thoughts that you have on these seemingly conflicting messages, Thanks.
2: I think, first off, I'm not sure they are conflicting messages. I mean, kids notice things, as you said, and they say them out loud, and they're not wrong to do it. When they notice someone is black, they're right. And when they notice someone is fat, they might be right there, too. And when they point it out um, or observe it, they're not saying it as a slight. We're the ones that attach meaning to it, not them. So that's, I think, the first thing to understand is that observing things in the world different if you're teaching your children at home that everyone's different and that these differences are beautiful, then, you know, you need to we need to mean it.
1: Yeah, although it's also worth knowing that the subject of that observation in the mall does not necessarily know what message you are passing along to your children. And so I think the important lesson for a parent to deliver to a kid in this case is to acknowledge to the kid that that you agree that that this is a neutral observation basically, that this is that, – that everyone of every body type is perfectly fine the way that they are while still pointing out that it is not necessarily the first thing that you should think about or talk about when you see a person, that it's not the most important thing about a person and does not necessarily need to be the first observation you make about a person. And that might be a slightly too nuanced – Message for a kid, but it did in fact work in our family. I mean, you know, there are sort of certain ways you can go about it. You can just say, oh, that's rude. People don't like it when you talk about their appearance right away, but we try, have tried to convey to our kids. That while those things are true, they don't necessarily need to be the first observation you make about someone, that you can make an observation about what they say or what they are doing or how they seem to be, whether they seem to be happy or sad or, or reading or watching a movie or whatever. Like There are other things to talk about necessarily than just uh, the way a person looks or their physical characteristics.
2: I also think this is an incredibly common thing and that children, like, figure out that line. I mean, you should definitely talk to them. I agree. But, like, they figure out that line so quickly, like, between three and five. I think they sort of learn what is okay to say in public and and what is not.
1: Right. And also adults are extremely tolerant of children saying embarrassing things. Like, for instance, uh, our awesome babysitter – Danae did not take it personally when four-year-old Lyra told her that she was gl- that she had just learned about slavery and she was glad she wasn't a slave. Like, that was fine. Danae laughed. I think it was not horribly uncomfortable and did not scar a relationship with her forever the way it would have if, for example, adult us had said that to her.
2: Right. Thanks for the call.
1: If you have a call that you want us to talk about or answer or a topic you want us to address on the show, please call us. You can call 424-255-RUDE at any time, day or night, and leave a voicemail that we might use on the show. That number again, 424-255-7833. We would love to hear your call. And you can always, of course, email us at uh if you have other questions, concerns, responses to what we say, or topic or guest ideas. All right, let's move on to our second topic today.
2: In a study published earlier this month, sociologists at North Carolina State University looked at how our romanticized vision of the home-cooked meal impacts the people mostly responsible for cooking it, mothers. The researchers interviewed 150 mothers and spent 250 hours observing 12 families in depth, and they found that, in their words... Time pressures, trade-offs to save money, and the burden of pleasing others make it difficult for mothers to enact the idealized vision of home-cooked meals advocated by foodies and public health officials. So, is the home-cooked meal and its close relative, the family dinner, overrated? Is it too difficult for parents to execute this romanticized vision? Dan, what do you think?
1: Uh, I don't think that it has to be that way. And maybe that is easy for me to say because I'm a dad, but in fact, in our family, I'm the person most frequently in charge in the kitchen. Um, I'm the one who makes dinner uh, quite often. And it does not seem like it is that it has that much intense pressure for us, even though both I and my wife work. We work a lot. We don't always have a lot of time. Um, But so we have Maybe it is simply that we have learned to settle for our own failures, but we do not get that stressed out about whether we had time to make a traditional family dinner meal. You know, sometimes I make a meal. Sometimes my wife makes a meal. Sometimes then my kids don't eat it. Um, but whatever, sometimes we make eggs, sometimes we order in, sometimes we have Harper make something that turns out to be terrible, but we eat it anyway. Like we try not to stress out about it. Is that too simplistic of an answer?
2: No, but I think some of that is you're, your. you aren't, you say sometimes you order in, so that's not the same as a home cooked meal. You're basically saying, screw you people who say I always have to make a home cooked meal. I can't always make a home cooked meal
1: in my life. Oh yeah. I guess that's what I'm saying. If anyone says that you always have to have a home cooked meal, screw you.
2: How do you actually, on the nights that you do cook, how does it work? Like you get home at work or your wife gets home at work from, at what time, from work and at what time? And when does the cooking occur? When does the shopping occur? How does break the, it down for us?
1: We are both lucky enough that we both often work from home. And so uh, usually the way it works is that on days that an actual meal gets cooked, it's because someone was working from home and had 20 minutes maybe after they we took the kids to the bus stop or sometime in the afternoon when we just needed a break to run to the grocery store and pick up stuff for that day. And then it's usually that person, often me, who then starts cooking maybe around 6 or 6.30. We often eat pretty late. In our house, I mean, that has always been the way that we are. But we are often not even eating till seven thirty or eight. But that seems to be fine. Our kids—it doesn't seem to bother our kids, and it doesn't throw off bedtime or anything like that. Um, but that is usually the way it works. You know, the kids are doing their homework, or they're helping me in the kitchen, or they're bothering me, and I'm telling them to stop bothering me. But it's not. But it's not like an awful ordeal, you know. And You know, and I also there's are many ways right in which this is a very we have it very easy on this front for example we have a nice kitchen we can afford to have a nice kitchen i can afford to go to the grocery store and buy this food i don't have a spouse who is picky and who complains about everything i eat although incidentally any adult who bitches about what his or her partner cooks for them is an asshole like that's flat out that is definitely the case um and so i recognize that we have all these privileges but we do manage like we do manage to make it work despite th- having plenty of things that would presumably stop us from being able to cook when we cook. What about you guys? How does it work in your house?
2: Um, well, I think as listeners probably know, I don't cook. Um, and it basically works in our house. That, well, actually, n- neither of us cook for the kids. Our nanny makes dinner for our kids because uh, I don't get home until 7 um, from work. And my husband usually gets home even later. And when I used to get home at 6, I made— Pretty much eggs and pasta. Those are kind of the only things I know how to cook. And I used to feel really proud of that and wore it as like a badge of feminist pride, but I do not feel proud of that anymore. Um,
1: Do you feel like legit guilty and bad about it? I feel guilty and
2: I feel a lot of pressure. I mean, I think like, you know, I think that that pressure is real. All those Food Network shows that seem to make it so easy, the 30 minute meal uh, and real simple. I don't know if they still do this, but they used to publish in every issue. Um, these weekly planners where they tell you what to buy a, buy for a full week's worth of cooking and plan out your meals for you, which is essentially supposed to, like, make it, you know, easier for you. It was, like, you know, as if it's, it's as aspirational and as difficult for me as looking at, you know, a fashion spread in vogue. Right. Um, you can't
1: spend your Sunday shopping because you're too busy opening up all the mail.
2: Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> but I will never live that down. But I think, you know... I also think that what you were saying, like this, in the study, they found that a lot of the problem had to do with, you know, time, and money were the two big things. I struggle with the time. We don't struggle with the money, and I can see how, how you know, not being able to afford the the fresh food that. Is you know better to cook for your kids, and not being able to afford the tools to cook it with, um, is a real problem for people. There was a there was a piece in response. So we on Slate we ran a piece called "The Tyranny of the Home Cook Meal," um, and and on the Billfold uh, they responded to that piece by saying, "Here's how family dinner and feminism can coexist," and there are three or four four um, kind of rules to live by. Everybody plans. Everybody shops. Everybody cooks. Everybody cleans. Meaning, it's not just on the mom. And I think that sounds really great, but that's nearly impossible to execute for most families. Also, most family, many families only have one parent, right. um, which is an incredible amount of pressure on that one parent. And even a lot of families that have two parents, two working parents, it's you know at dinner time usually only one of them is home. I, mean, I think you are in, in an unusual situation.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, usually it's only one of us home during the cooking time as well, but we at least are lucky enough to have someone working at home during the day sometimes to be able to prep a little, which helps. But do you think that it would help if just in general the emphasis not even – if the emphasis of family dinner became less about whether you cooked it or not but simply about whether it was Good or not, and whether you have that time together, like I feel like once upon a time, the point of the cult of the home cooked meal as it existed say twenty or twenty five years ago was not about you like you know growing mung bean sprouts in your garden and then harvesting them and cooking the perfect bean sprout salad for your children that they then devour and grow up to be a healthy and strong organic children. It was about the time that you spent together at the table once the meal was cooked and it, it who cared what the food was? Is that true? Is that the way it used to be?
2: I think so. I mean, I think it was different because I don't think it, it wasn't – there wasn't this pressure to, like, right, grow your own vegetables. But I think basically it used to be that moms were home, so nobody thought about it. And the moms really were cooking, you know, at real food or maybe not real food. There was plenty of, like, you know, disgusting casseroles. But, you know, I think there's – they're related but different questions. Obviously, kids need to eat. Families need to eat. Parents need to eat. Meals need to be prepared. There's no, like, you know, sort of <laughs> – there's no – there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's a necessity. We have not yet
1: found a way to create children who do not consume food, right. much as we might try, sure.
2: But I think in terms of taking the pressure off, I think the pressure is in the cooking. And maybe I'm really speaking for myself, but I don't think that's true because that's what this study found as well. I think the, the, the related uh, question about sitting down together for a meal – also has its own pressures because of people's work schedules. It is not. It is also not as easy to accomplish as it once was, um, and so I think romanticizing it is probably a bad um, and dangerous thing for a lot of for a lot of parents. However, I guess I mourn. I loved growing up having family dinner every night. We were able to have family dinner every night because of my mother. Nobody ever recognized that. I don't think, um, and I wish that our family could could do it or did it more. And we always say when the kids are older and they can stay up later and we can have dinner later, we will. I don't know if that's true. I think it's something to, you know, I guess strive for, but not in a way that makes you feel bad about yourself if you don't accomplish it, like anything in parenting.
1: Yeah. I mean, I also think it is worth remembering for people who are feeling stressed out about this, moms or dads, that if that exact time does not work for your family, that there are other rituals you can create for your family that fit into your schedule that involve spending time together and doing something great and wholesome for your kids that you enjoy together that aren't family dinner and maybe that aren't even a meal at all, but like that if if what you are feeling guilty about is not is not the food necessarily, but the togetherness that that's for many people a solvable problem if you just take that like crucial idealistic sheen off the family dinner and transfer it to something else in your life that's actually accomplishable.
2: Agreed. That's great advice. Okay, let's move on to recommendations.
1: All right. You want to go?
2: Sure. I am going to recommend something that's related to our first topic about porn. I'm going to recommend the re- the website Scarletine, which bills itself as sex ed for the real world. Um, it's for teenagers and young 20-somethings, although I really think more for teenagers. Um, and it has... Sexual health and relationship guides that are really written for what you know what what teenagers would want to know questions that they would actually ha- ask that apply to their r- real lives um, It has highly moderated message boards so that your kids can ask questions and not get garbage in return from yahoo answers and it 's really not for us it 's not for parents, but I think actually if you 're like trying to figure out how to have the sex talk or how to figure have the porn talk. It's a a great resource for parents as well. So, Scarlatine, I will put the website on our our show page.
1: That's a great recommendation. I am recommending something much uh, more callow. I am recommending Taking Babysitters on Vacation. Um so when before we had kids Alia would tell me these stories of her family vacations when she was a kid when her family would go to the beach and her parents would bring along some local Akakik, Maryland teenager with them to babysit for the kids at the beach and I always thought what well, that is crazy who does that who brings a non family member along with them on their vacation but this the other week we went on vacation to the beach and we brought um, Alia's cousin, who just graduated from college with us, and it was totally great. In the past, those vacations, the beach vacations specifically, where it's just like a week with us in a house with our kids, have been super intense times of family bonding and togetherness, and they left me feeling very close to my kids, but they were not relaxing in any way, shape, or form, and I would get like back to work afterwards feeling like, in fact, I had... Like been at war for a week as opposed to that I had uh, been relaxing and because that's a lot of kid time with like no break ever but this year we brought Pekka down and I we were able to relax a little and play with our kids and then relax and then play with our kids. And I read a bunch of books and also feel really close to my family. And we paid her like a couple hundred bucks but also gave her a free beach vacation. Um, And obviously, once again, we were very lucky to be able to do that. But it, it was not like... It was not like a crazy, outrageous expense to bring this person along, in addition to the already crazy, outrageous expense of our vacation. And there are plenty of vacations where this is not a great option. But if you have not ever thought about this as an option for the sit-around-in-a-rented-house kind of vacation, I cannot recommend it enough. Bring a babysitter for your kids.
2: Bring Dan's it's, cousin.
1: Bring, my, bring Alia's cousin <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to the beach with you. I bet she'll take the job. She still needs a job. <laughs> Also, if any um, any government organizations in the Washington, D.C. area need a very chipper, six-foot-two tall person with a degree in communications, let me know. <laughs> All right. That's our show. Visit the show page for this episode where you can see links to articles that we discussed and items we recommended. Once again, if you have any questions for us, if you have suggestions for guests we should talk to or books we should read or things that we should do or uh, great babysitters for future vacations of mine, um, just send us an email at at slate.com. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes while you're there. Leave a comment. That really helps other people discover the show. Also, another thing that helps people discover the show is if you tell them about the show. Thanks to our sponsor, Hulu Plus. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, and the executive producer of Slate Podcast, Andy Bowers. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening.